The police came up out of the basement and said, everybody, get in the hallway. Well, I knew I had the dope on me in the pocket I had on the trench coat that had a pocket inside. So I'm thinking maybe they'll miss it, right? Where they searched, they went right to the pocket. But it didn't dawn on me then because a lot of stuff was running through my mind. I went to jail. I got indeterminate sentence. I didn't find out until I got up there that I had three years. I knew that this was inevitable. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And today we start part two of our drug dealer series, a compilation of stories about a different kind of entrepreneur, one who demonstrates the same independence, hustle, and perseverance of our previous founders, but whose attributes evolved under different circumstances. Today's episode is about David Norman and his life in the streets of New York. By the time he was 18, he had stabbed two people and had been selling drugs for half a decade. By the time he was 67, he had been handed a diploma as the oldest graduate from Columbia University. Just like any walkway in New York City swarming with people and under constant construction, David's path to success was havoc with obstacles. We'll see him navigate through the complex web of childhood trauma and institutionalized racism all the way to the prestigious halls of Columbia. But first, we'll stop at the heart of jazz, soul food, and nightlife where David spent his early childhood. 1950s, Harlem, New York. Jazz was the major music of that time. And that and that whole scene was influenced by marijuana and heroin. You know, jazz players, jazz musicians played music and, you know, they often got high. And a lot of them came from the Harlem area or they worked in Harlem. A lot of the street people, the hustlers, and many of the uh, working people, everyday working people were jazz aficionados. I had three people raising me, my grandmother, my aunt, and my mother. And my mother was there, but often not there. She eventually developed a drug habit. When we would go out, my grandmother would hold my hand and she'd be with her friend or something. We'd walk to the corner and we'd get on the corner sometime and there would be this conversation, like older ladies would stand around and there would be someone nodding from drug use, from heroin use. Heroin was the premier drug at that time in in Harlem. It was the drug capital of the world. (laughs) Numbers, jazz, junkies, hustlers, and heroin were all institutions of the streets in 1950s Harlem. Before the civil rights movement and figures like Malcolm X were honored with street signs, Discrimination by real estate companies and bank lenders was rampant. Black residents were excluded from upper-class boroughs and limited to low-income housing. Harlem was one of these ghettoized neighborhoods. As residents adapted to their circumstances, a rich and complex culture arose. It became not just the drug capital of the country, but also an intellectual capital, fostering thinkers and musicians from Langston Hughes to Louis Armstrong. With the resilience of a young child, David too adapted to this landscape. A lot of black people come from the South and people bring their folk ways and their folklores from the South with them. And some of the things, I remember my grandmother doing this, they had rent parties. So if you want to pay your rent, you throw a party uh, and you might gamble, people might gamble, they play a game called Pity Pat. 
or with or poker or some type of game, and you could be the house, and you would get cuts off the winnings and losings. A lot of people did rent parties where they just had music. People would come to your house on a Saturday night and party. At that time, in the early 50s, it was a lot of blues and rhythm and blues, and then there was the explosion of the groups, you know, later on that came in. I remember a song by an artist named Laverne Baker called St. Louis Blues that played in my house a lot. And the lyrics went something like, I hate to see that evening sun go down. Everybody made food, soul food. I mean, really soul food. You know, you can buy things like uh, pig feet, macaroni and cheese, and collard greens, and people would just make this themselves in their house and, and sell it. And that's the way a lot of people made money. I remember all of that before I was, when I was five. Having a deep understanding for his neighborhood dynamics, David found safety and love in a place he called home. This is a time he looks back on with fondness, a time untainted by the trauma that was to come. We'll be right back after this break. So I've been drinking a lot of coffee lately, and I recently heard about this one coffee called Kopi Luwak. And it's pretty weird because, uh, well, you know what? I'll just let Jack Nicholson take it away. Kopi Luwak is the world's most expensive coffee. And it's expensive, well, because of a very unique process that has to do with a tree cat that eats, eats the, the beans, beans, digest them, and then defecate. Then people collect the stools and process them into coffee. So basically, it's cat poo coffee. And that got me a little worried. Like, have I inadvertently had this before? So I called up my local Starbucks and asked, is there poop in my coffee? Hi there, this is Robert from Pico and Lincoln, Antonio speaking. I was reading online and I heard about this coffee called Kopi Luwak, and I'm, I'm worried if there's poop in, in the Starbucks coffee. Uh, no, there is not. That's a special type of coffee and we do not sell, nor do we use that type of coffee. How do you know there's no poop in there? Well, I, I... um... I can 100% assure you that our coffee is poop-free. Wait, so, there's, so you're not sure? I cannot guarantee you 100%. Man, I wish determining if there was poop in your coffee was as simple as sharing an episode of Finding Founders with your friends. But unfortunately, I do not have control over the complete supply line, so I can't guarantee you 100% that there is no fecal matter in the coffee. Yeah, I guess poop coffee surveillance is harder than screenshotting Finding Founders and posting it to the social media for choice, or just texting it to a friend. Unfortunately, it's not. Well, if you ever feel like you need to calm down or want to listen to some interesting, inspirational stories, you should check out Finding Founders. Okay, will do. Thank you for the advice. Thanks. So just remember, whether or not there's poop in your coffee, you should check out Finding Founders and make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. My grandmother had a job. One day she came to me and she said, I'm going to send you to live with my sister for a while, your Aunt Mary. I don't remember my ex exact response, but I know I wasn't too happy about it. And she said, you're going to Mount Vernon, which I never heard of. She said, you'll like it, dear. And I asked her why. And she said, you know that I have to go to work every day. And, you know, your mother's in the hospital. 
That turned out to be not true. My mother was incarcerated. She was in Bedford Hills in Westchester County, which was the women's prison in New York State. I don't know what exactly she was locked up for that time. At five, I was uprooted from this sort of happy existence with my people who were raising me, my grandmother, my mother, and my aunt. But what I wasn't prepared for was my aunt's viciousness, I guess. There was a series of beatings that started and smotherings. And I don't know to this day when I think back on it, I don't know exactly why I was being beat. In my mind, I felt as if I had been bad in some way, but I didn't know in what way I had been bad because I had never been touched by any of my relatives to that point. So, of course, when this started, I was really unprepared for it. This went on for five years. There is a tradition in, in Black punishment of children. From my studying and what I believe in and, and have seen, it's an offshoot of slavery because you couldn't raise a child who was impolite to a slave master. You couldn't raise a child who may be killed by a slave master. So boys especially were beaten to try to make them sort of submissive so they wouldn't talk back. I started school not shortly afterwards and my comfort was to go to school during the day because nothing had happened to me from nine to three in the afternoon. I loved it because I was away from being beaten, but I also loved it because I was good in school. And I remember the first time we had graham crackers and milk. I remember being able to play with the toys and with the other kids that were there. I remember the nap time. Kindergarten was David's safe haven. And unfortunately, it wasn't just because he was given cookies and milk. It was his only escape from the petrifying home life he now had with his great aunt. The beatings David endured permanently damaged his self-worth. Processing this trauma as a child, he concluded that something about himself deserved mistreatment. He learned that he could be shamed and abused for simply being himself. Yet today, David views his aunt with an intellectually informed sense of compassion. He considers the historical context of racial trauma he believes her behavior came from. As we'll see throughout his story, David learns how easily trauma can manifest itself in destructive behavior and blur the lines of accountability. Did you tell your grandmother what was happening here with these beatings? I didn't until later. I was scared to tell. And I wasn't sure anyone was going to believe me. What happened was I sort of hatched a plan. After I come home from school, I would go out into the yard. And I used to play out there. And it was a low fence. And I remember around seven years old, I would jump over the fence and run towards the New Haven train station. My plan was to run to the train station, get on the train, and go back to Harlem. Each time I'd run back because I didn't want to get caught. At the age of about nine, I think, I decided that I was going to burn my aunt up in the house. And I got the opportunity one day. 
I went in the kitchen and I set the curtains in the kitchen on fire. And then I ran outside and acted as if I was playing. Apparently they had came back downstairs and they discovered the curtains burning. And so they put the fire out. And I guess they just never suspected me because there was never was anything said about it again. And so I decided to run away. And so one day I jumped over the fence and I ran. And so I ran to the train and I ran on the south side, the side going south. I wound up coming down to Harlem, 42nd Street and Grand Central Station. So I got on the subway and I kept riding uptown and downtown and uptown. I got off on 116th Street. And as soon as I came up out of the train, I knew where I was. So I headed to the block that I had grown up in and I stopped at the first building that I got to and I went in the hallway and I fell asleep on the ground in the hallway. And when I woke up, some man had me in his arms and he was walking up the block towards my grandmother's stoop. He said, I found him. And he tucked me up the stairs and he put me in the bed and I went right to sleep again. And so the next day we talked about why I ran away. I told her, I mean, what happened? And I had been beaten and smothered. And my grandmother said to me, my sister wouldn't do that. And so she tucked me back the next day. And as she walked out the door, I said to her, I said, Ma, I'm going to be beaten as soon as you leave the house. And sure enough, as soon as she left, I was beaten and smothered again. That was like someday in the middle of the week. That Saturday, a car pulled up and my grandmother got out the car and I was standing in the hallway. My aunt opened the door and I see my grandmother coming and, my, and she walked in and she said, Mary, you know, this kid has never told me a lie. I thought about this and I'm taking him. Give me his clothes. Anyway, we got back to the city. If you don't know about trauma, you would say at this point in this story, happy ending. But that was actually the beginning of a terrible period in my life. This five-year period would have reverberating effects on David's identity. He had been living with a fear so far-reaching that he'd resort to anything, even burning his aunt alive, if it would save him from the humiliation and pain he was experiencing. The image of young David arriving at Grand Central Station resembles the edifice of confusion that his childhood trauma had dropped him off at. Walking in the whirlwind of New Yorkers frantically rushing by the thousands, David had no clear direction to get where he needed to go. His disturbing journey through domestic abuse had come to a stop, but it would be a long, difficult ride before he could navigate the overwhelming anxiety that it left him with. So I was 10 years old. I was going to the fifth grade. I was a straight A student in Mount Vernon. They put me in one of the worst classes in the school. There was an individual who was bullying me every day when I came to school. I had one block to walk home and I would get bullied by him. We used to call this guy Crooked Mouth Hank. I used to get a quarter to go to get lunch if he didn't take my quarter. My mother's sister noticed that when I came home, I was very hungry. She said, why are you going straight to the refrigerator every, every time you come in the house? Is someone taking your money? And I said, yeah. And she said, and who is this guy? Are you fighting back? 
And I said, no. And she said, I'm going to tell you this. If you come in here one more time and you go in this refrigerator, I'm going to beat your ass. Even though my family never beat me. If you can't beat him, pick up something and hit him with. The next day, and I hatched the plan. I didn't know if I could beat this guy. I never had had a real fight. So I put bricks and bottles and sticks in certain garbage cans because I know he would chase me. I came out of school and he did his, you know, proverbial, walked up to me, give me your money. And that strange voice with his mouth twisted to the side. And I said, no. And I took off running. And he ran and I ran to the first garbage can. I had put a brick or something in there, a rock. And I took it out and as he was running towards me, I hit him and it hurt him, right? And then I went over to him. I saw he was kind of hurt and I went over to him and then I started to fight him with my fists and I beat him up. That also set off a spiral of fighting. I was happy because I didn't want to be a victim again. I knew that I could fight. I wanted to fight now and I and I was no longer afraid to fight, but I abused that power. And so I was fighting a lot when I was 11 and 12 by the time, but we were all buying wine from the liquor store. We used to go to the liquor store. By that time I had made friends in the block. We were hanging out. All of us came from fairly broken families, single parent households. We started robbing and stealing. Robbing, stealing, and fighting. David had created a combative relationship between himself and the world around him. Attachment theory explains how caregivers in our early childhood contribute to the ways we relate to the world around us. Anxious avoidant is the attachment style often associated with those who have suffered abuse. Unable to rely on their caretaker for comfort or even safety, these individuals become extremely distrustful of anyone but themselves. After being a helpless victim to his aunt's abuse, you can imagine the relief and excitement that rushed through David when he learned he could protect himself. If we identify insecure attachment styles, we can learn to reframe our learned thinking patterns and build security in ourselves and others. But without this self-awareness, insecure attachment styles appear in impulsive responses and destructive coping mechanisms. With David's newfound self-reliance, he would build a blockade between himself and the cruelties he had been vulnerable to as a child. But unfortunately, this external wall would not protect him from the internal anxiety his trauma continued to torment him with. Something started to happen to me. I would start to get these, what I thought was asthma attacks. I could not breathe. And I'd be with all my friends, but I didn't want them to see that I was having these attacks. And I'd say, you know, I turned to one of my friends and say, oh, you know what, I got something to do, man. I'll be back, all right? I would run to the hospital. I used to go to Harlem Hospital. And I'd say, I can't breathe. And they take me to the emergency room. I would get the same doctor in the emergency room because it was happening around the same time. I came one day, he said, don't help him. It's nothing wrong with him. It's psychosomatic. It meant that it was a psychological problem that was manifesting physiologically. That sort of led to the drinking. I encountered alcohol because people in my family drank. My aunt, my mother's sister drank. My mother, of course, did drugs. She drank. My grandmother drank on, on the weekends, sometimes after she worked. And so, like I said, they had congregations and parties, and I would go around and start draining the, the glasses that were left. Before I got to junior high school, I used to play hooky. And so I'd meet up with the friends from my block who didn't go to school, 
and we would buy liquor. So the drinking was sort of a cry to be comfortable in my own skin. I was socially inept. I was socially uncomfortable. I was unable to date because I was too afraid that if people got to know me, they would see how bad I was. I had internalized this idea that what happened to me happened to me because I was just rotten inside and I was ashamed. But I could, the only time I could be social was when I drank. And, it, and then the drugs came into play. Without a counselor or therapist, drugs and alcohol were the only things offering David relief from the intense discomfort that trauma had left in his body. Psychiatrist and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps Score, Bessel A. van der Kolk, describes David's physical response to the pain of his past. Van der Kolk explains that long after a traumatic experience is over, it may be reactivated at the slightest hint of danger and mobilize disturbed brain circuits and secrete massive amounts of stress hormones. This precipitates unpleasant emotions, intense physical sensations, and impulsive and aggressive actions. And their whole weekend is hijacked by something that's happened. And then they deal with this hijacking by trying to calm themselves down in any way they can. And that's where the whole issue of drugs and alcohol comes in. The doctor David had turned to for help had left him to heal these painful symptoms of trauma all on his own. But trauma response is a massively complex subject, one that's taken years of research for psychologists to understand. Childhood abuse not only releases neurochemical responses for aggressive behavior, but it also is the leading cause of substance addiction. These psychological factors predispose David to violence and drugs. And in a place like Harlem, he had easy access to both. Unable to navigate his trauma and environmental triggers all on his own, David let a life of crime take the wheel. A lot of us thought of it as being cool. Me and a bunch of guys from 117th Street, we usually came out to movies and snatched pocketbooks or robbed people. I remember one night somebody started sniffing a bag of dope. He passed it around and I took a couple of sniffs. And what did you feel? I felt sick first. I threw up. After I got past the sickness, it was a sort of calm that came over me. I got sick. But I noticed I just felt relaxed. I wasn't afraid. And that even gave me, I guess, more false courage because, I, you know, I started to engage in more robberies. We would rob people. We'd strong arm people. We called it yoking. Did you feel bad about taking, like, money and, and, and holding people up? <laughs> I never stuck anybody up. But yeah, maybe. No, I never stuck anybody. We did well, strong. Say, so, sorry, I, I'm, I'm confusing the, the terms. So when you say strong arming, what does that mean? Strong arming is mean we had a, we had a method. All right, I was a small guy. I was skinny. You'd have a big guy, strong guy, who could grab the, the person in a, what you call a yoke hole, what is considered a police choke hole, and you'd hold that person so that person couldn't struggle. And then you'd have a little guy who was the pocket man. So that was my first job, the pocket man. And that was to hit the pockets of the person that the guy was holding. And we take off running. Who were you targeting? We were targeting working people in the community. Whoever we thought had some money that wasn't dangerous enough to kill us, I guess. 
Did you feel bad about this or was it was it exciting? It wasn't that it was exciting. And this is the thing. I actually did a lot of thinking about this. As far as I was concerned, that was all there was in life for me. That's what we did. Even though I read a lot of books, I knew there was a better world. It just never dawned on me that it was for me. You know, I come from, my my father was in and out of jail. My mother was in and out of jail. Almost everybody in our community was in it. All of the men were in and out of jail. And I never thought about it. I never moralized about it. And I always asked myself, why not? After I did a serious taking account of myself and going back over my life, I realized that if you don't know that there's a better life for you, or if you know that there's a better life, but in all the books you see, there weren't black doctors, there weren't black lawyers. They were, they were, you know, in the early 60s, you know, all the books I read, if I read about people down south, they were servants. My grandmother was a servant. They were people who were doing some job for white people. Harlem had formed hierarchies and customs of crime out of the limited opportunities segregation had given its community. David and his friends had put school on the back burner, but so had the rest of New York City for black youths in the 1960s. Classrooms in Harlem were overcrowded, underfunded, and staffed with teachers who lacked the proper qualifications. Subsequently, the progress of these students fell drastically behind those in white districts, robbing them of the potential that education is intended to foster. David didn't know that the cycle of imprisonment caused by institutional racism was something that could be escaped, just like he didn't know he could escape the impulsive behavior his trauma was causing. Until you understand the obstacles that are stopping you, it's nearly impossible to overcome them. David swallowed his struggles and lived life within the confines of what he believed was his reality. My best friend's father was a hustler. He was a family man. He had nine kids. That was, he was the only one I knew who had his father in his life that, that was actually in the household. And all of my friends had the same aspirations. Our aspirations was to be hustlers. For the most part, drug dealers were kings. In the neighborhood I come from, we had some of the biggest drug dealers. Frank Lucas, they did his story, American Gangster. He was in my neighborhood. Nicky Bonds, he was in my neighborhood. Fat Jack, Goldfinger. All of these guys were getting narcotics from the mafia and selling them. So you had a hierarchy, all right? This is what drug dealers did. If you were trustworthy, they would give you a package. A package of 25, what they call half a loads, not sold for $30. They give you 25. This was heroin. And you sold it. And the split was six, $6 to $4 on every bag. If you were trustworthy and you sold the drugs and you gave it back, you would get more and more. Some of the guys who were a little faster than me and older would come in the block. They were like what you call a lieutenant. So they got a package from someone, break the packages up and give them to us so that we could sell and we'd make our share and give them their money and then they would get all the money together and take it back to the guy. And that way they would get more drugs. But since you could trust each other, that's how it went. And the, and the goal was for you to save enough money to buy your own drugs. 
and then you could cut it up the way you wanted to, and you could give out packages to people. When you say cut it up, what do, do you mean like cutting it with other things? A cutting agent is a chemical used to cut, dilute, recreational drugs with something less expensive than the drug itself. Heroin was cut with Bonita and quinine because quinine gives you a rush. In its pure form, if you shoot heroin, it comes up slowly in your system and it, it builds. But if you put quinine in it, there's a rush and a burning sensation that, that drug addicts like. Everybody that got the drugs, everybody that came into the drugs, cut it, all right? If you wanted it to be somewhat pure, you cut it very, so that the next person you give it to could cut his drugs. Drugs literally sold themselves. The better they were, you didn't have to be a great salesman. The better they were, word was passed around, he has good drugs and, he, and you can go to him. I was introduced to that about 13. I didn't start that way. I started as a younger guy working for an older person who was selling on the street. When, when a person would come up, he would tell me we would hide the drugs in the garbage can and he would put up two fingers or three fingers, me giving him three bags. And so we were sort of moving up the ladder a little bit. What were some of your close calls during this lifestyle? And, and also, how did you progress up the chain? I had more incidences with uh, the robbing thing, I think, than I had with drugs. I had one incident when I was robbing somebody. We actually used to go out in little crews to rob people. And we had two new guys that moved into our block. And they kept asking us, can I go with you one, one night? And we used to go, no, because we knew they had never did it. Finally, someone had the great idea. Yeah, let them go and they can hit the guy's pockets while we grab the dude or whatever. And we grabbed this guy and we had him down on the ground and they were going through his pockets. They were seasoned, so they didn't know what the hell they were doing. They pulled out the wallet to get the money, and when they opened the wallet, they saw uh, that this guy was a police officer. But here's what you do in that situation. He is in a yoke hole, he's down, he can't do anything. You say, yo, don't let him go, he's the police. They didn't say that. They just started screaming, police, police, police. And so we think it's the lookout and the police are coming. So we let the guy go and we start running. The guy gets up off the ground and starts firing shots at us. And I'm hearing these shots and I'm zigzagging and running. And we finally get away and we're all going like, where did the police come from so fast? And they went, no, he was the police, and they showed us the wallet. And of course, we beat the shit out of him because we had grabbed police officers before. That was a situation of inexperience kicking in and, and um, almost causing all of us to get killed. Being a newbie to a robbery could get you and your friends killed. It was a high-risk task, and the kids on David's block formed an intricate system of teamwork to execute it safely. Thieves and drug dealers are often thought of as slackers who opt out of hard work to find easy ways of making money. But as David described it, these endeavors seemed extremely stressful. Hustling wasn't the easy way to make money, but due to the rampant discrimination and broken school system, as far as young David could see, it was the only way to make money. 
He now not only had the trauma of his childhood, but also the trauma from life-threatening encounters he was having on the streets. With each experience physically altering neural pathways in his brain, the interplay between nature and nurture had become complexly intertwined. Nonetheless, David would be the one answering the consequences to come. What happened was, I was a guy that I had an argument with. I didn't like him. I felt he thought he was better than everybody else. But he was, but we, we grew up in the same block. I don't know. We had some words and I stabbed him. His grandmother called the police on me and that was my first arrest. And I went, I went to jail. What did that feel like for you? It wasn't really long enough to, for me to get the full atmosphere of going to jail. I went that night and then I went to court the next morning and I came home and then I eventually took a wild plea youthful offender because it was my first time and, you know, you don't get any time for that. Well, I, I, you know, I was, I was so broken and so hurt that the only thing I knew how to do was fight. (laughs) And, and the way I carried myself, a lot of people didn't mess with me because I didn't talk much. I I still had major hangups. I was unable to express myself. It wasn't that I was unable to articulate myself. It was that my shame led me to believing that I would revealing things about myself would make me vulnerable. So a lot of people knew nothing about me. They knew I stabbed people. They knew I beat up people. They knew I didn't talk much. And so they couldn't really get a bead on whether I was crazy or whether I was hurt or whether I just was this way. For what reason? Because I gave them no way to decipher that. All they know is that I, that I was like this. People couldn't decipher David because his persona only presented the husk of a traumatic childhood, one that concealed the long neglected pain of his most vulnerable years. 1967, when he was 18, was the year of the long hot summer a national pushback from black Americans in response to America's history of unemployment, segregated housing, and violent policing, all stemming from racial discrimination and rampant inequality. Thousands of black Americans in cities across the U.S. demanded respect from a government that continued to perpetuate injustice. It's a demand that, to this day, pulses the arteries of America, and one that shook the nation's structure just last year as millions of Americans took to the streets to protest the death of George Floyd. It's a stark backdrop to David's small snapshot of time. The society that David lived in stifled opportunity for communities like Harlem. Drugs were an accessible means for revenue. Packages of drugs ensured income but they also insured risk. By the time I was 18, I was selling drugs for this gentleman. He, he was giving me packages. And I would come and I'd pick up a package, I'd sell it, take him the money, and he'd give me another package. We, I was out one night and I was all right. I had just sniffed a bag of dope, but a friend of mine was sick. He, and he said, damn, you know, I don't, have any, I don't have any dope, man, I'm sick. So I said, listen, this dude been asking me to take these five half a loads for a long time. I'm going to go get them and, you know, we'll sniff a couple of bags and, you know, I'll sell the rest and take him his money. We went in the hallway, me and my friend. We sniffed about three or four of the bags. I gave him a bag for himself. 
And then I left him. Then I walked across the street and got on the stoop with the people. We were all standing on the stoop. And right as I got on the stoop and I said a few words, hey, what's up? And everybody was talking. So the police came up out of the basement and said, everybody, get in the hallway. What are you thinking? Like, what, like, what, what are you feeling and thinking at this moment? But it didn't dawn on me then because a lot of stuff was running through my mind. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to jail. And my other friend who was standing on the stoop, he was 16. He had cocaine on him. So they took both of us. They put us in the car and uh, we went up to the precinct and they booked us and they called his parents because he was 16 and he went home. They came and got him and he went home. I went to jail. I got three years uh, because I was 18. Three years? Yeah, three years. What did that feel like to to know that you would possibly be in prison for for a, a, up to three years? I knew that this was inevitable. That's what's so strange. I knew it was inevitable. I wasn't sure how I would handle it, but I had I, I first went to the precinct, and then after I stayed in the what's called the Brooklyn House of Detention, going back and forth to court until I copped out. They had a school up there, and I went to school for six months to take this equivalency test. But I had this wonderful experience with two guys in, in the cell, two young white guys in the cell, one on my left and one on my right. And we became friends. And these two guys and myself spent a couple of years together in these same cells. And the other guy on my side was this Shakespearean meth head, methamphetamine head. He was a... He loved Shakespeare, and he was he was kind of nerdy too, you know. But he this, and this, I guess this was the first time in a while he had been he had been free of methamphetamines, and he and he would tell me about Shakespeare and you know what the drama was, what the intrigue was, and he'd read lines from Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the question. And he had never got his diploma, and I had never got my diploma, and the other kid had never got his diploma. And he was, the other kid was pretty bright too. I mean, he had went to good schools and for whatever reason he messed up and never got his diploma. And we used to study a little bit at night. We'd, we'd, we'd talk to each other through the night before we had to stop talking about stuff that was on the test. I, I remember seeing iambic pentameter on something. And I said, what, what, what's an am, iambic pentameter? And he said to me, oh, that's a foot in poetry. It's two syllables. One is stressed and one is unstressed. So it's like da, da. So the second syllable is stressed. He said, that's called an iambic pentameter. And then there's there are other feats like a trochee. And I said, oh, okay. And that was it. When I took the, the uh, test for the equivalency diploma, on the English test, the first, the first question was, what was an iambic pentameter? And I was like, whoa, I got this one. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how many people took this test in the institution. I think it maybe was 60 or 70. But we three got the highest grades. They let us know that we three, or the th- three on the same tier <laughs> and three cells right next to each other got the highest grades. I got the second highest. So we were all within a point or two of each other, two or three points, no more than that. 
David was making up for the lost time in prison. He was removed from the pace of the streets and could now fall into books without reservation. This period of the 60s fostered a new progressive era as President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced the Great Society, an effort which sought to eliminate racial inequalities across the U.S. But the roots of inequality were, and in countless ways still are, woven deep into the fabric of America. Drugs were a source of income, and David, like millions of others for decades to come, would feel the brunt of the system because of it. But if the system was pushing against him, he was pushing back and using these months to move forward to land on both feet upon his release. What are you thinking like about being released back in, into the world? And what, how, how are you thinking about navigating your life from this point? I only had two objectives. I knew I, I liked studying. I knew I loved reading. And I decided I was going to go to college. Well, that was objective two, because objective one was to get a job to get out. You know, because some guys, after they were paroled, stayed there five months, six months. They couldn't get a job. And so I went to this school. And I applied for a grant. And so I went there, and they're calling us by name in the room, right? Uh, one girl went in, and she came out, and she was smiling. And they said, how much money you got? I got $400. You know, and it was for you. The money was for you to get supplies to get clothing and stuff like that right so i walked in and they gave me a thousand dollars so i walked out of the room i'm cool under all circumstances i got the smirk on my face i'm walking out so one of the girls said what happened man what happened i gotta be cool i got a g i got this look on my face i'm walking to the door so she said go ahead and smile you know you want to smile but, but that wasn't a good idea at that time. I wasn't ready for it. I bought drugs. I did a couple of things. I did go to school for about six months, and then I withdrew. But didn't you see, like, this other life that you could have? If, like, 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 because it seems like you're giving these, giving these opportunities. I couldn't have a life until I got over the pain. What life did I have? I couldn't have a life. I couldn't even talk to a partner. I had to be a, like, emotionless person. You have to believe that the world is beneficent. You have to believe that the world has meaning and that you are worthy. That's what sh- trauma shatters. It shatters that belief. So you don't have that belief and you, and it definitely shatters your ability to have relationships with people. 30 years later, I looked at the transcript and I thought I was failing everything and I wasn't. I had a very famous teacher, and I didn't know it until 30 years later, a black activist named, uh, and poet named Sonia Sanchez. She was my teacher in, in African-American history. And as soon as I saw her name, I said I was in Sonia Sanchez's class. I would die to have her as a teacher now. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know any of this. I just knew for some reason I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I needed, I, I needed somebody to recognize me. We included a link to a poem by Sonia Sanchez in the description and highly recommend checking it out. In her piece, This Is Not a Small Voice, she writes, where they suck the bones of the alphabet and spit out closed vowels. This is what David did in prison, book after book, and what he sought to do upon his release. But layers of trauma and abuse prevented an existence free from torment, and he continued to fall into patterns that tethered him to his past. 
The three core beliefs that David describes, those that trauma shatters, are easily taken for granted. We wake up cradling a cup of coffee between our palms and move through the morning without reflecting on a world void of meaning or relationships riddled with distrust. The brain's a delicate balance. For David, this balance was an even. And despite his efforts to regain footing, drugs wound their way back in. So anyway, I sold drugs throughout the 80s. I got a habit. To cut this short, I was selling stuff on the street. I was selling socks. I was out one day and I had sold my clothes. And after I sold what I'd had, I had a few things left. And I was up in Harlem. I stopped at the liquor store. I was having a drink. And I put the stuff down on the ground and stood there. And this guy came by and scooped up the socks. As he was walking away, I looked and I said, oh, I know who that is. He must be playing. But anyway, I waited and he didn't come back with my stuff. It just so happened the next morning I came out and it was like nine o'clock in the morning and he was out in front of the liquor store with some guys drinking. So I, I walked over to him and I said, why did you take my shit, man? Just give me the money for the socks. And he said, I don't have any money. And it was like two or three other people with him. So I said, listen, I'm going up to 125th Street. I'll be back down here about five o'clock this afternoon. So you've got the rest of the day to get my money. I walked off and I left this guy like a few, uh, you know, like at least two or three car lanes behind me. As I'm walking off, I hear this voice in my right ear. He said, I said I was going to give you your money, motherfucker. I guess if he felt that he had to show face or something because people were looking and I cursed him out. And I kept a knife and a large knife in my pocket. When I stuck my hand in my pocket, I came out with the knife and I turned around. And as I turned around, I stabbed straight out and he was coming at me with his hands up in the air and I stabbed him. And uh, I actually stabbed him in the heart. And then I saw this look come over his face and he said, I told you I was sorry. He dropped right there, he dropped on the ground. I picked up my bag and stuff and I walked away. And I looked back and it was two guys around him and they were calling for help. And so I walked away and as I'm walking past the liquor store, my hand is shaking. I'm angry because I, I should have just walked up to him and beat him up. I tried to reason with him and I walked away and I felt he was attacking me from behind. From the tip to the hilt of the knife, there was like a streak of blood on each side, a thin streak of blood, because the knife was really sharp. It was surgical act, and I realized I had stabbed him. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just aroused and crazy, and I walked away, and I put the knife back in the holster, and I threw the knife in the sewer, and I kept walking. You know, a couple of days later, I came out and a guy stopped me. He said, you know, so-and-so was in the hospital. I said, is he okay? And they said, yeah, he's all right. Which uh, really was a mistake. I really messed up. I really messed up there. But it was, a, it was a good thing that happened because the police came to Westchester and got me. I went downtown. I, I went voluntarily. My aunt, went, went, she went down with me, rather. We got there and they asked me a few questions. So now I remember that the dude came home. So I said, I told him, yeah, I did it. I didn't know he had died. You know, as a matter of fact, the district attorney told me after they locked me up, he said, well, confession is good for your soul. The image of David's dagger, streaks of blood lining the blade, is chilling. 
His trauma surfacing in a rush of adrenaline had once again summoned the fight or flight mode that he had become so familiar with. This is not in a common pattern. In 2012, the National Institute of Health reported that 56% of male inmates were victims of physical trauma as children, with over 25% having experienced emotional abuse, such as neglect or abandonment. Society places people in boxes and demands accountability. But what happens when your own brain is working against you? When every step you take toward improvement is yanked backward by physical responses out of your control? Time was not unfolding in David's favor, and his response in this moment proved fatal. They first charged me with second-degree murder, which carried 25 to life. And then they broke it down to manslaughter, I think, to second degree. And they were talking about giving me three years to nine. And I got that four to 12 years, and it changed my life. I was 40. I was in a medium security jail. I remembered a program that was there when I came in. It's now called Transitional Services. And they were like seminars and lectures. They did classes on change. They did classes on decision-making. And what happened was they were being done by the inmates. The inmates actually had a lot of say in the program. I remember when I came in and I sat and I listened to these people. And remember, I still was not a talker. I decided I was going to try this program. And I also realized that I would have to stand up in front of people and talk something I'd never done before in my life, and it scared me to death. But I had begun to start making changes. I had started reading more, and I had started reading what learned helplessness was. I learned about how dogs who were put in an electrified grid and shocked, and half of the grid was electrified and the other half wasn't electrified, and they would jump from one side to the other. Experimenters then came in and harnessed them in the electrified part and just kept shocking these dogs. And what they found is that the dogs stopped trying to escape the shocks. They just laid down and whimpered and defecated. And I realized that I was seeing what happened to me and to others in the conditions that I came from. Now, I don't want anybody to think that I'm excusing anything I did, but it gave me a new perspective on things. And so I decided to take this job and I said, I read about this psychologist who had some of the problems I had. His name was Albert Ellis. And I realized how you think was important, what you thought was important. And he taught me to dispute my irrational beliefs. And so I knew I was going to be scared when I stood up in this classroom. And the first day I, I applied for this job, I got it. My chance came to give this talk on decision-making or change. And I stood up and I talked. It was fear, but I talked. I'm glad when it was over, but I wanted to do it again. And the next time I did it, an inmate came up to me after. He said, hey, man, what were you, a pimp out in the street? He said, because you can talk. At the same time, I became a facilitator. And so I would work with a corrections counselor and people would come in who had been victims of crimes. And I enjoyed it. And I actually moved up in rank. I became the senior counselor. I actually became so good that they would not let me leave the institution. I began to do that and I found a voice. 
I found out that I was really an extrovert in an introvert body. And I started to deal with my issues. And I started to read about what happens to young kids who've been traumatized at an early age. And I started to read about African-American slavery and how learned helplessness may be a carryover from enslavement. Later on, when I came home, I started to find out about intergenerational transmission of trauma, how families transmit trauma. We're going to pause for a second on some of the things that David mentions here, because they're important not only for the story, but for the story of millions of others locked in that same space. Learned helplessness occurs when you face negative, often traumatic circumstances that you have no control over. At a certain point, you stop trying to push back and resign to the circumstance, no matter how awful it may be. Intergenerational trauma describes the physical and emotional impact of traumatic events felt across generations. With studies looking into Holocaust survivors, their families, and here in the U.S., the institution of slavery and the ongoing discrimination against people of color. Concepts like these provided a foundation for David to build upon, to begin looking into why he was how he was and how he could help others. He was reclaiming his story, his life, and he was pulling up others with him. What happened is people used to tell me in the jail, you should be a teacher. And I laughed and I said, thank you, blah, blah, blah. But when I came home, I remembered that. I knew before I came home, I was finished with drug dealing, with drug addiction. I just knew it. And what happened was I was serving people. That's when I began to realize the things that I learned in the street was wrong. They taught me in the street that human nature was like very bad and people would do things to you. So therefore you needed to do things to them first. But when I came home, I realized I was stupid and I didn't know where I was going to get a job. So I knew there were two areas in which I could go get a job. And so I went to Mount Vernon Hospital and applied for a job as an HIV educator since I had certificates in that. What I was becoming was a servant. And I never realized the power in serving until then. My sense of shame was being assuaged. My guilt was starting to fall back. I started to confront the issues about my trauma. I started to talk to people about it. I didn't know I was being therapeutic, but once I came out of my shell and started talking, you couldn't shut me up. And so as you like learned more and you had all of these experiences uplifting people, how did that translate to going to Columbia post-incarceration? It happened sort of on a whim. I was going to go to college. I was working on going to college. I was thinking about how I was going to do it. Fortunately, in the HIV world and the work and the work that we do, you had to have training, constant training. So I would go to the training and the guy was speaking about stigma and HIV positive people. So after the lecture, I went up and I started talking to him. I said, great presentation. Let me ask you some questions. And we were talking for a while and he looked at me and he said, you want a job? You could do this part time. He said, well, we have a cohort of people. We're researchers. We have interviewers. You know, you can drive them around because sometimes they can't get to the respondents and you can drive them. So I started working for Columbia part-time. And one day, a job opened up, and they were telling me, they said, oh, yeah, we have to find another interviewer. And I said, I'll take the job. The job was like $7,000 more than I was making at the time. 
and I thought about the opportunity to go to school. And I think the next year I applied for Columbia. I started to get these doubts. I started to say, oh yeah, suppose you fail because I was afraid of failing in anything. But I had had this five years of experience, you know, where I just got up in front of people, some who didn't like me and spoke. And I felt confident about that. They made me write an essay about what would I take if I went to Columbia. And I said philosophy. And in the end, what happened was I went in, I took this test. They gave me this blue notebook and they gave me a written test. I looked at the blue notebook and they said, write why you want to take philosophy. And I had read a lot of philosophy, so I immediately sat down and I wrote. I knew all these words and I just threw this essay together. And they called me and said, I found out later that they only take 7% of the people that apply. And I got in and I had a talk with my advisor. They gave me an advisor. He called me and he said, do you know that you got one of the highest verbal scores of anyone in this class and some other classes? Going to jail when I went to jail at the age I went to jail, that experience and Columbia were the two best experiences in my life. Securing this position at Columbia represented years of investment and outreach within the community, despite the stigma that accompanies jail time. It seems counterintuitive, but the years David spent in prison provided a glimpse of humanity, a light that had been blown out among the violence of the streets. There's this battle between the binaries. Are humans inherently good or are we inherently evil? Depending on how you were raised or the environment you are immersed in, your perspective may tilt to one side. But people are more complex than that. Were these vast networks of experience and environment and genetic composition existing in societies that are far larger than at any other point in human history? But now, equipped with a better understanding of his own experiences, David was able to provide reflections of humanity back towards his community. First, let me explain to you that if you're working, you can only take at the most seven credits per semester. So at that pace, it takes you 10 years to get a bachelor's degree. So it took me 10 years. The big thing about that was it's the first thing I finished of any duration. And that was one of my major problems, not finishing stuff. A friend of mine called the Daily News about me, and they came and they did an interview with me. And then Fox 5 called. I did two interviews with Channel 5 in New York, which is Fox TV. I did one with WPIX, which is Channel 11 in New York. I did an NPR piece. I did I did a few things, a fusion interview. In the day of the graduation, I'm running because I was late. They're calling, getting ready to call the section I'm in. And I get to the end of the line, I'm huffing and puffing. I'm sitting at the end of the line, right? And I hear this voice up front go, David. And I look up and I see a young lady waving at me. Come up front. Everybody had heard the new, read the papers and saw the TV. And I walked up front. She said, this space is reserved for you. You're leading us in. I almost cried just then. I just, tears just welled up in my eyes at that moment, right? Here I was leading this procession. I was 67 years old. I had graduated from Columbia University. It was one of the most joyous days in my life. What advice would you give that 14, 15-year-old kid that's getting into a little bit of trouble? What advice would you give 
yourself or, or, or someone, someone in that position? Don't take things for granted. One of the biggest problems with people in general, young and old, we're born into traditions. People are members of certain religions simply because they were born into that. Their family were members of particular religions. A famous philosopher said, the unexamined life is not worth living. What I've learned from my experience is that you question everything. You ask yourself why. And the biggest thing I found out is that I was too focused on things outside of myself. I wanted a big car. I wanted more money. I wanted a marvelous place to live in. None of that meant anything. The best thing you can do is change yourself and those things outside of you change. I found out that what makes me happy was there all the time. I didn't need those things. I found out that one of the ways that I felt good about myself was that people used to always say to me, if you try to do things, people will help you. When I was a kid, I used to hear so much about attitude. Your attitude matters, your attitude matters, your attitude matters. And I used to go, yeah, sure, your attitude matters. And I found out your attitude matters. A lot of success comes about because people have the right attitude. There was a gentleman who told me this story. He said there once was a guy who worked as a his family was servants to the king. And so his family had served kings for generations. And of course, when this guy grew up, he was a server. And one day he was out walking on the beach somewhere and he found this lamp and he rubbed the lamp and a genie appeared. And she said, your wish is my command. And she said, what do you want? And he said, for real? She said, yeah, I'm a genie. I'll grant you your wish. He said, I don't want to serve nobody. I've been serving people all my life. I don't want to serve anyone no more. My family's been serving people for centuries. I want to be served. And she said, your wish is my command. You will be served in every area. So he had servers serving him every day, every night, every whim that he want. And about a month and a half later, he rubbed the lamp. And he said, he said, I don't want, I, I'm tired of being served. I, I don't like this. She said, yeah, but that's what you wanted. He said, yeah, but this is like being in hell. She said, where do you think you are? So the moral of that particular story is that serving sort of takes the focus off you. You don't worry about yourself as much and you start to feel better about yourself. Serve somebody. That's a spiritual reality. Try it and I think you might like it. This story began in a crowded Harlem apartment and ended in Morningside Heights on the campus of Columbia University. They're separated by a mere six-minute car drive, but it was a decades-long journey for David. And now, here he was, 67 years old, leading the procession. From the way he talks about it, you'd feel as though the David of the past was a different person altogether. His calm, steady storytelling feels removed from this time, now many years ago but he isn't removed from it. It left deep imprints on his character and provides a reference point for progress. There is no quick fix for trauma, and to examine the experiences that at one point broke you is an exhausting process. But like David, we need to examine life, examine the areas where change is not a suggestion, but a necessity. It takes looking into the eye of millions of protesters, gathering on the hot asphalt of a summer day, 
week after week, voices in unison, even if it creates discomfort in the process. David does not define himself by wealth or by having a name that reverberates between coasts. What matters to him is his ability to alter the lives of others, to pluck from life all it has to give, to be completely immersed in the pages of books, and well, to tell stories like this one. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zhang, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu with support from Tiffany Dang, Kayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcaba, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.